Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They had been been around the block a time or two. Wasn't the first deal they built, I bet. No, no. I think the the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped up car, and he he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap, cheapo cars, and that, that were really no match. But he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Presented by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, 
America's racing showplace. Is that the trophy? That is your trophy on display at his house. Sorry, rascal. Yeah, you made it work. 1995 Darlington. You won that race. I won that race. I (laughs) kicked their tails. That was the most relaxed, down-to-earth thing that I've done. Relaxed? Absolutely. That I had the most fun since I had had when I was racing with the family back in the 80s. Did you ever beat yourself up for running the race in the first place? No. I would do it again tomorrow. Tomorrow, I would get right back in that car and do it again. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, everyone. I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, presented by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing show place, and a track that truly cares about NASCAR history. And of course, we are also now a part of the Daily Downforce Network. Now, Steve, I am in Nashville right now. Good for you. I'm in my hometown, and we had our get-together with a bunch of our listeners from the area last night. You got to hear this. The place where we ate last night, the name of it is Meat Sweats. Meat Sweats? Yes. You have no idea what image that concocts for me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the images that it concocts, I would be willing to bet that those images would be pretty doggone accurate. (laughs) (laughs) And what was so gratifying for me, we had a great turnout last night, despite the fact that there was a severe thunderstorm warning going on at the time and as everybody was leaving it was raining buckets well i know what you mean here in charlotte yesterday we had a bad thunderstorm knocked my power out for an hour and a half so i know exactly what you're talking about well we had ourselves a blast and everybody who said they were going to be there was there despite the weather i know that we drove through a pretty bad storm just to get there but everybody showed up. Now, Billy Perkins had fussed at me a while back for my love of Wits Barbecue. Every time I come to Nashville, I got to have some Wits Barbecue. And when yeah. the East Steps come to North Carolina, they bring Wits Barbecue. Well, that evidently offended Billy Perkins. So he sent us a video, and he couldn't believe that I like Wits as opposed to his favorite place which is evidently run by a buddy of his, and the place is called, as I said, Meat Sweats. And as soon as I heard that name, I knew that I had to visit. At Meat Sweats, I'm pretty sure you didn't get any vegan food, right? No, there was no vegan food to be had. (laughs) So so what what did you have? That was a place for strictly carnivores. (laughs) (laughs) And I had a barbecue sandwich, and it was very, very good. But again, what was so cool about last night, Billy was there, Chris Gleason, Jeremy Reckelhoff, Kevin McKenzie, and his brother, Steve, Chris Wolf, the legendary Chase Whitaker, Matt Milkey, and my best friend, Joe Estep. They were all there. 
Sounds like a roll call of fine listeners. And speaking of Joe Estep, this afternoon, I am going to watch the Atlanta race where my journey began in this sport. And I can't wait, Steve. I'm going to watch the race tonight from my spot on Sandy Estep's couch. Rick, that sounds like a thin slice of heaven. Nah, Steve. That's a great big old honking slice of heaven. (laughs) (laughs) Because not only am I going to watch the race on Sandy Estep's couch, they already have the Wits Barbecue ready to rock and roll, baby. Now, I'm very, very envious of you, Rick. Uh, I'll be watching the Atlanta race alone because my wife is in Asheville visiting my daughter with two cats. That's about it. So she's there with the cats. You're batching it tonight? I am indeed. Now, don't feel too sorry for me. I've got uh, my scotch. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to be watching it with Jim Beam. Okay, I got you. (laughs) Yeah. No, actually, Johnny Walker. (laughs) Well, Steve, here's the deal. You've got time to catch a flight to Nashville, and you can be here in time for the green flag to watch the race with me on Sandy Steps Cash. Now, you can't have my spot. I'm like Sheldon on the Big Bang Theory. You can't have my spot on the couch. (laughs) But you got time to catch a flight. Come on, man. Well, very, very tempting. But Rick, I tell you what, I can't catch a flight back in time. And I'm not here when Margaret's here. Ooh, boy, everything is going to be for naught. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. Well, Steve, also, while I've been in the middle of Tennessee area, I did one interview yesterday and it was so good that I'm going to bump it to the front of the line. And we're going to start running it next week. I'm going to go ahead and say it. Bobby Hamilton Jr. All right. And Steve, I got to say, I was a little bit surprised by this interview because when I knew Bobby in the Bush series, he was kind of quiet and he was yeah. kind of reserved. And you could tell that he wasn't quite comfortable with the media. Well, I don't know who it was that I talked to yesterday, <laughs> but it was not the same Bobby Hamilton Jr. <laughs> that I knew in the Bush series all those years ago. It was an awesome conversation. Well, like you said, Rick, we do have to bump it up so our listeners can listen to this awesome conversation. That is a good problem to have because we have a lot of good content already in the can, and it is hard to decide which we should go with first. We are blessed with an abundance of riches here on this show with the interviews that we got. We have some good stuff already in the can and i've got another interview scheduled tomorrow that's going to be good i tell you what rick i know we got a lot of good good content in the can but when we acquire something like you did with bobby hamilton jr i agree let the fans listen to it first steve this week in the second and final installment of our interview with larry pearson he talks about the theft of his trophy by the dastardly Mike Alexander. (laughs) He talks about making a statement with his 1987 Bush Series championship, his Winston Cup woes that were followed by redemption at Darlington, teaching teenagers how to drive, and his devastating wreck during an old-timers race at Bristol. I remember that one, Rick. That was very frightening. Sort of made you wonder, what in the world are they doing in the guys' race at Bristol? 
Well, they never raced that race again. And from the severity of that accident, for good reason. Then in our second segment, we're going to go back to the March 30, 1995 issue of Winston Cup scene. Sterling Marlin gets around Dale Earnhardt to win a wreck marred race at Darlington. Larry Pearson makes it back to victory lane in the tracks Bush series race. And I get the scoop cough, cough (laughs) 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 on James Hilton's retirement. (laughs) Uh, Folks were laughing because, uh, I don't know that James really retired after that. (laughs) Steve, this week we have PayPal help from Scott Perman. So Scott, thank you. I appreciate that. Listeners, you can show your support by grabbing a t-shirt or two from our online store. You can show your support with a five-star rating and a written review. Listeners, if you can help us out on a monthly basis, you can do so at patreon.com slash the same vault podcast. Or if you would prefer to do a one-time show of support, you can do that via paypal.me slash the same vault podcast or venmo.com slash the same vault podcast. And also just as a reminder, this show is not affiliated in any way with American city business journals, owner of the same brand. Nineteen eighty seven, Jefferson, Georgia. Mike Alexander was scored at first as the winner. And you were not happy about it. You made the cover of my very first book, Second to None, fussing at Buster Alton over the finish of this race. What went on there? Well, Mike and I had been the class of the field. Uh I was no doubt in my mind I was the winner. No doubt in his mind, he was the winner. Uh, during pit stops, I think I changed two tires. He changed four. Um, but he still thought he won the race. He was declared the winner. He got the trophy and jumped in his truck and left. With the trophy? With my trophy. Uh, I think deep down he knew he didn't win the race. That's why he snuck out of there real quick. <laughs> But uh, I got another trophy. I mean, it, it wasn't that trophy. Mike still has that trophy. As a matter of fact, he and I, this has been a couple of years ago, he was in Spartanburg to apply for a job at another race shop, and he called me up, and he and I had breakfast together at uh, a Waffle House close by. And he's sitting there. He got there before me. He's sitting there, and I come walking in, and we shook hands and hugged and all that. And I sit down, and he comes out. He said, I got your trophy. I said, really? He brings me out a little plastic trophy (laughs) and hands it to me. And we laughed about that. And uh, (laughs) But he's just, he's a really good guy. Now, really is good. that the trophy that you said that you had, or did you actually get no, a replica? I actually got a trophy. NASCAR had made me a, a, a replica of a, that trophy. So, I mean, it was it was a, the same height and everything. I mean, so NASCAR a, actually had to have one made because they did. Mike wouldn't give it back. Mike would not give it back. All right. So I texted Mike yesterday, and I told him that I was going to be talking to you, and he was kind enough to send me a photo that he wanted you to see. 
Is that the trophy? That is your trophy on display at his house. That sorry rascal. <laughs> <laughs> now, he did say that it is there for you to claim. I'm a peacemaker. See, I, you I know, I'm, you I'm, I'm here to... He knows that I won that race. I'm here to bring people together, all right? So he did make you an offer. He said once you send him the winner's share of the money, you, <laughs> you won a little over $7,000 that night. He took home not quite $3,000. So for the difference of about $4,000 or so, that trophy is yours. So are you going to send him a check? I'm not going to send him a check, but I want my trophy. 1986, 1987, you went out and won the championship. Hmm. Hands down. There was was no discussing that you were the class of the field that year. How did the two titles compare for you? Well, the 87 title title was, I told you so. Okay. Uh, That's, you know, for the 1986 people that think that I couldn't have won it. Okay. But... 1987, I showed them that, by golly, I can win it. That was the exclamation point. I won it uh, decisively. 1988, you had really kind of an up-and-down season and wound up third in the standings, pretty good ways behind Tommy Ellis. Was there any particular reason for that kind of drop-off, or was it just one of those racing deals? Well, we knew that in 89 we were going cup racing. So you knew that going into the season? Mm, yeah. Really? Yeah. Okay. And so we were building cup cars at the time, and we didn't put as much emphasis on our Bush Series program as we should have. Okay. Uh, but, you know, I, I would have liked to have won in 88. I think we could have if we had put our full attention on the program. But we didn't. But still finished in top five. So, did you did you running in cup races in '88? No, you did not. So no. you were just building cars. Yes. Did you have sponsorship in place? Was there sponsorship in place that fell through at some point? It seems to me like I remember that. Well, we had Chattanooga Chew, okay. which is a chewing tobacco, right? Uh, from oh my God, when way back when eighty. Four maybe up until 90 or the end of 89. And uh, there was some potential for other sponsors when Chattanooga 2 pulled out in 89 for some reason or another. Uh, but people keep saying, you know, well, you had this big-time sponsor. Let me tell you, we didn't get a lot of money. I mean, like... We would try we had we had Chattanooga Chew, like I said. Ingram had Skull. And so we would compete against each other, uh, because of two the two rival tobacco companies. If Jack got let's round it off and say if Jack got five hundred thousand for the year, Chattanooga Chew would give me five fifty. If Jack got six, we'd get six fifty. Don't know how Chattanooga Chew knew how much Jack was getting. I have no idea. But they would always give me 50000 more so I could actually have an extra engine. That's what engines cost back then. Yeah. So I could have one more engine than Jack did because 
Jack was the man to beat. You ran the full Winston Cup schedule in 1989, but from cold, hard numbers, it would appear to have been a struggle. Was there a sense of the team biting off more than it could chew? Was the competition just that much tougher? What was going on? Well, we uh, the competition was definitely tougher. Uh, I don't think we bit off more than we could chew. It was back then. It was hard for a rookie driver, a rookie crew chief, rookie crew members, rookie engine builder to come into the sport and and compete with the top tier teams. Like unlike today, where is if you're a driver and you have a lot of money and you can go to an established team like yeah. Hendrick, Gibbs, RCR, and so on, you know, they got good equipment, I mean, right off the bat. And it's not that we didn't have good equipment. We just didn't know how to use it. Uh, plus, that was the first year, I think, that we ran. It was the first year that we ran a Buick. Heck, we didn't know anything about aerodynamics and stuff like yeah. that. We'd never been to a wind tunnel. I mean, you know, so, I mean, it, it was very hard. But I can tell you that if, if if our sponsor had stuck around for another year, uh, our second year would have been a heck of a lot better. So how did you react to Chattanooga Chew going away? No, oh, I, I, was, I was devastated. I was mad. Uh, I thought that it was because we were asking for too much money. But later I had found out that my PR guy, and I won't mention any names, had suggested to Chattanooga Chew that they go with another driver, up-and-coming driver. And they had decided to do that. Now, come to find out, the other driver that they were going to had another sponsor lined up. So the other driver went with the other sponsor that they had instead of going with Chattanooga Chew. So that left Chattanooga Chew out in the cold, and then they had to start doing farm shows. So my PR guy at that time, he had to be going to these farm shows, which absolutely tickled the heck out of me. He was no longer in racing and uh, karma. How difficult was it to shut that team down Ooh. in 91? Well, we tried to run a couple of races, hoping to pick up sponsors. NASCAR at the time was trying was, was helping us get sponsors. But being the rookie that I was, rookie team and all, and our, our finishes, even though we did have a couple of top 10 finishes in 89, uh, with the results being what they were, it was, it was hard. It was yeah. very hard to get. And so we just, we decided to shut it down. I had to start racing for wannabe car owners and picking up any ride that I could get and which wasn't smart on my part. And, but, I'd rather be racing junk 
just to be out there than sitting at home. So what did you do after shutting the team down? Because it was another, what, two or three years before you got the ride with Mike Martin. Mm-hmm. And you you were trying to bridge the gap with the different car owners. Right. Uh, nothing. I mean, I would run as many races as they could afford. Uh, they were just trying to get into the sport like I, well, like I was, the cup racing. And uh, we didn't have any success at all. I mean, we had a few good runs, but not good finishes. And then in 93, I think, uh, I, I, I drove for Mac Martin in the Bush Series. How'd you get hooked up with him? Uh, well, Hut Strickland drove for him a okay. few races, yeah. uh, just part-time. And Hut, I guess he decided he wanted to concentrate more on cup racing back then. I'm not sure. But anyway, uh, Mac Martin's PR guy called me and asked me would I be interested and I said, sure. I had seen that car race before, so I knew it was a good car. So I went up to Mooresville to the shop up there, and uh, I started running some races for him. The very first race we ran was at Orange County. Uh, again, I finished second to Ward Burton. Ward Burton won that race, uh, but we were really close together. Uh but and and then on, I mean, it, it we had we had a lot of success at Martin, Mac Martin. Uh, we had Stanley as a as a sponsor, and they were they were in in for the long haul, and you know it, it, we made it work. Yeah, you made it work. Nineteen ninety five Darlington. You won that race. I won that race. I <laughs> kicked their tails. Uh, it was about time. I mean, I had raced there so many times and ran, had some pretty good runs there. I mean, the first time I went, it was, <laughs> it was a mess. I yeah. had no idea what I was doing. Yeah. But, you know, in 95, it finally clicked. The setup was good. I mean, and I could run wide. The only time I had to back off of that car was getting into turn one, which is now turned. Whatever. <laughs> whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was wide open the rest of the way, going through it, going into turn one now, which was turn three. I mean, I, it was wide open, and it it was it was it was great. How big a deal was that for you after everything that your dad had done there? Well, I mean, it was a big deal to me just to win there. Okay. Uh, leaving him aside, I mean, he 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 had so much success there, and he had tried to bang into my head how to how to do things there and that day it finally it finally clicked yeah and it it was it was a great feeling i mean that was the first win ever for martin motorsports and it was my first super speedway win but i mean it was Unbelievably great. Please tell me your dad was on the spotter stand with a dead radio. I will not tell you that he was on the spotter stand. <laughs> I would not have won that race if he had a been. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, he was not. He was, uh, someone told me that he was 
pulling through the tunnel. He he watched me go over the uh, the tunnel in turn three yeah. at that time, coming around for the checker flag, and then he went through the tunnel after I went by and left and left. So he didn't go to victory lane. No. Was that something that you missed or was he just not wanting to take any attention off? That's exactly what it was. He did not want the attention to be on him, even though I would have liked for him to be there. Uh, That's just the way he was. He, he avoided spotlight. Yeah. And that's, that's why He's not as famous among people, fans today, like Richard. Richard will speak, talk to anyone. Well, Dad will too, if you approach him first. He won't go up and start talking to people. Never did. He was uh, shy, and I mean shy, until you get to know him. Then he wouldn't be quiet. Oh. Uh, that's just the way he was, the type of person he was. I mean, people would ask him stuff to do stuff at the racetrack, and he said, no, I'll let Richard do it. I mean, that's, that was him. You parted ways with Mike. Stanley wound up going with you to, I think, Tad. Geschechter. Geschechter. Was Mike just getting out, or did you part ways? Or You know, to this day, I have no, no, I have no idea why, we closed, or why Mike closed the shop. Okay. We had a good race team, and I honestly, I, to this day, I have no idea. I have an idea, but I won't, I won't say. But we could have done some really good things there, really good. After that, you had several more rides. Kurt, I think Curtis Key, I know that you drove for Buckshot uh, and Billy. Jones, uh, there are some other rides in there. What was the transition away from driving like for you? Was it something that you missed, or were you satisfied that you'd had your time in the sun, so to speak? Well, to this day, I would still drive a race car. It's just something that I love doing. I mean, I really enjoyed racing. So that goes back to the 91, 92 days when I would pick up rides here and there. Uh, Tad uh, Geschechter, that was just a couple of races. I mean, it was no big deal. Uh, Curtis Key was racing was a disaster. Um, buckshot racing was something that I probably should not have done. Uh, but when you want to race, you'll race something. So what did you do once you did step away from driving? I sat at home. Uh, the last race with buckshot was 1999. I sat at home during 2000, didn't try to race. I figured I was done. Uh, Then I opened up. Well, I got tired of sitting at home. I didn't open up. I I worked for actually a driving school, teaching teenagers how to drive. (laughs) Yeah, that's funny. 
Oh. How did that come about? Well, I got tired of sitting at home. Okay. And a friend of mine's son, they had passed a law in South Carolina where teenagers at 15 or whatever, 16, had to take driver's ed to be able to get their driver's license. So that's how that started. So I, I said, you know, I think I'll try that. So I started working for another driving school in 2000, worked for them for a year, and said, hey, I can do this on my own. So in 2001, I opened up Pearson Driving School, and I closed that down in 2020, January of 2021, maybe 2022, 2022. And that was the most relaxed, down-to-earth thing that I've done. Relaxed? Absolutely. That I had the most fun since I had had when I was racing with the family back in the 80s. Really? It was great. Why was I, that? Those kids, they're funny as crap, <laughs> especially trying to drive. Yeah, yeah. Uh, most of the kids that I had could drive. Okay. And drove very well. The kids that I had that had never been behind the wheel, we would go to a graveyard, believe it or not. <laughs> Graveyards that had roads in, yeah. in and out yeah. and yeah. roads throughout the grave sites and stuff. And that's where they would learn to drive. I mean, it wasn't like they were going to hurt anybody. <laughs> and, you know, they would <laughs> they would learn to, to, to brake and use their signals and yeah turn correctly and mash the gas. And that's where that's that's where we learned to drive, or the kids learned to drive. Okay, so you said that that was the most relaxed fun that you've had in a long time since you were racing with your family. Surely you've got a good student driver story. What's the most scared you ever got? Surely you got scared. No. Really? No, never. You know why I didn't get scared? Because I had a brake on my side. <laughs> if I didn't have that brake on my side, I would never have done it. But yeah, I could stop them whenever I wanted to. And How often over- did you use that brake? Oh, I wore it out. <laughs> yeah, big time. Sometimes we'd be going down the road, and I'd just hit it for the fun, just scare those, scare them, the kids. And but I mean, I, I had a lot of fun with them. I really, really did, and enjoyed it so much. So you did that for over 20 years? Yeah. Wow. How yeah. many kids did you... Oh, God. Do you Thousands. have any idea? No, I don't. Now, was it just road work, or did you teach classroom? Uh, I had another guy teach the classroom for me. Okay. I had better things to do, like fish. But, no, he taught the classroom, and I did the road work and give the test. They could also go through us to get their license. I never failed anyone. Really? No. All right. Because they could, they could drive when I finished with them. They could do donuts. They could hit the wall. <laughs> they could spin out. I mean, they could do it all. Now, what was mom and daddy's reaction when the kids told them, hey, Mr. Pearson taught us how to do a donut? <laughs> I've had a couple of parents that told me uh, or asked, why did you let my kid run 95 miles an hour on the interstate? And I said, because they would drive too slow. And I did. I had kids that would drive yeah. 20 miles an hour in a 55 speed zone because they were so scared. 
And so I took them on the interstate. And we get on the interstate, and we hauled butt. And they liked it. And once we got off the interstate, they wanted to haul butt again. So I had to start slowing them down then. So, I mean, it, it just works that way. I mean, they love it. Kids love it. I mean, I don't, I guess a couple of them have had accidents since they got their license, but hopefully none of them was their fault. 2010 Bristol Legends race. Speaking of wanting to race and would still race, how much of that accident with Charlie Glotzbach do you remember? Uh, because he drove through your race car. Yes, he did. And looking at the still photos, he was definitely inside there. Uh, I don't remember much. Uh, I did wake up when they were pulling me. You know, when, when I laid, I, I remember laying on the stretcher when they pulled me out of the car. I remember laying on the stretcher. I remember screaming to Ricky, don't let them give me an IV. Because I hate needles. Really? Yeah. I hate needles. I hate them. Uh, and he said, okay, I will. Uh, they won't give you an IV. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, I passed back out. Uh, I don't remember getting on the helicopter to fly me. I woke up when I was in the air on the helicopter. And the guy that was, was, was tending to me there, he said, you're going to be okay. All you have is a broke leg. And I remember shaking my head yes, and then I went out again. Uh, that's it. I woke up in the hospital the day later after six surgeries. Uh, both knees both knees broken, uh, left ankle broken, left leg broken, uh, hip broken, Right hand broken and three broke ribs. How long were you in the hospital? Uh, I don't know. Really? I really don't know. Uh, a long time. When did you start feeling like Larry Pearson again? Well, let's see. I came home from the hospital whenever that was. They had a hospital bed at my home. I slept in a hospital bed. Um. Uh, I had stairs in my house. My my bat bathroom was upstairs. Couldn't go upstairs. I had to sit in a chair on the deck outside at nighttime where my wife would bathe me. Uh, she'd pour hot buckets of hot water over me, get me all soaked up and rinse me off with buckets of hot water. Uh, it was a bad time. Back then, um, when I started feeling myself, I don't know. Sometimes I still don't. I mean, sometimes you'll have these aches and pains. My, my knees will give out, or one knee, it'll give out, and I'll almost go down. Uh, the good thing is I don't limp. Uh, the doctors up there, they... They did a fantastic job on me. Uh, I do have a lot of pins and screws and rods, whatever. 
in my body. Uh, but on occasion, it'll, it'll bother me. But no, I'm I'm great. I'm good to go now. Did you ever talk to Charlie about what had happened? No. Really? No. You were beaten up pretty bad in that wreck, but did you ever beat yourself up for running the race in the first place? No. I would do it again tomorrow. Tomorrow, I would get right back in that car and do it again. It was great. I loved it. Why? It's the feeling. It's the feeling you get. It, it's hard to explain yeah. what racing feels like. Yeah. It's the speed. It's the G-forces in the corners. It's beating your competitors, being the best that particular day. And I still have that drive. I can't do it. I mean, my pride says I can but I know I can't, but I sure would, I'd give it a, give it a shot well, at Bristol. At Bristol? At Bristol. Nowhere else? Maybe Darlington. Okay. That's it. Only those two places. Well, I was going to say, I'm driving the pace truck this year at Lonesome Pine in Coburn. You, pace truck ain't fast enough. You, you can drive it. No, no, I'm, I'm saying I'll drive it. You be in the race with, drag you a late model up there or something. I wish I had one. Uh, that's a, that's a, you want to see how quick somebody give Larry Pierce? No, no, listen, no. I'm not politicking for this. My wife would kill you. <laughs> <laughs> so you would, she would not. Yeah. It would have to be secretly done. Before. <laughs> then I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> what did it mean to you and the rest of your family when your daddy was elected to the NASCAR hall of fame? Oh, it's a great honor. Uh, he should have been on the first ballot, but politics played a lot to do with that. Uh, everyone knew that he should have been on the first ballot, but just wasn't meant to be. But anyway, he was there on the second. Uh, he was very proud, and we were we were proud, obviously, as a family, to be there. Uh, just a big honor to do that. To get in. How are you spending most of your time these days? I'm staying very busy, uh, to be honest with you. I, I get up uh, out of my recliner and I go pee at least four times. Uh, I do fish a lot. I'm going to the Keys at the end of April to do some fishing. Me and a couple of buddies, we're going to fish down there. I, I, I really like fishing. I would like to hit uh, Johnny Marsh up for a, for a, for a boat. Uh, but I don't have his number. So if you're listening, Johnny Marsh, I'd like to have a deal on a boat, <laughs> a bass boat. But, yeah, I just I, I do fish, uh, whatever I want to do. Yeah. I mean, you know, I fish. Uh, mostly we, we, we have some rental property, me and, me and Rick and Eddie, and we, we keep up the rental property. Ricky cuts most of the grass here on the farm. Uh, that's his job. Uh, I mean, we stay busy. I mean, but we we do what we want to.
Hey race fans, John Dodson here from NASCAR Technical Institute. NASCAR Tech is open and enrolling with classes starting every three to six weeks. In our 48-week automotive technology program, students learn everything from vehicle electronic technology to diagnostics and drivability. And as our exclusive educational provider for NASCAR, we offer a 15-week NASCAR elective where students learn engines, fabrication, aerodynamics, pit crew essentials, and more. NASCAR Tech also offers 36-week welding and CNC machining training programs so you can choose the path that best fits your career goals. Ready to see how you can get started? Visit uti.edu slash NASCAR today. NASCAR Technical Institute prepares graduates to work as entry-level automotive service technicians. Some graduates who take NASCAR-specific electives also may have job opportunities in racing-related industries. NASCAR Tech is an educational institution and cannot guarantee employment or salary. This segment is brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing show place. Before we really dig into the whole Larry Pearson, Mike Alexander stolen trophy thing, we talked about the race in question back in episode 183 when we had Mike on the show. Mike almost got another win at Jefferson, Georgia in June in 1987. The scoreboard and scoring showed him as the leader for basically the last half of the race. Larry Pearson had pitted midway through the event, and scoring initially had him listed as two laps down. Had him listed as two laps down for basically the rest of the race. The race ends. Mike takes the checkered flag, goes to victory lane, gets the trophy, takes off for home. Now, Larry and his team protested saying that they only lost one lap during that pit stop. Then they made it up, and they insisted that Larry won the race and not Mike. And there's actually a photo of Larry yelling at Buster Alton, the Bush Series official, after the race that night, making his thoughts known in no uncertain terms on the cover of Second to None. Now, old Buster... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> old Buster didn't have a lot of luck in second to none. There's two photos of him in the book, one on the cover getting yelled at by Larry. And then the other, he's trying to calm down Jimmy Spencer, who appeared completely spun out and half turned over. Having to deal with Larry Pearson and then Jimmy Spencer, poor old Buster, he didn't really get a good shake in your book, that's for sure. Now, Steve, some people might take a thing like this and absolutely obliterate a friendship over it. But Mike and Larry, they are good friends, and they evidently like to give each other a hard time. Kind of like another couple of friends and coworkers who shall forever remain nameless, me and you. Yeah, Rick, but I'm not sure that I would steal a trophy from you. I know how you are about your prized positions. <laughs> So you aren't going to steal a trophy from me? Is that what you're saying? No, I'm just not going to let you know that I did it. (laughs) (laughs) Now, listeners, you heard Larry's side of the story a few minutes ago. And again, back in episode 183, Mike had his say. Uh, You've mentioned Jefferson, Georgia a couple of times. You were flagged the winner. According to scoreboard, you did lead the last half of the race or whatever. But Larry did protest, and he was eventually awarded the victory. What do you remember about that night? 
Well, I, I do because that one was, I do remember that one because it was taken away from us. Um, but how that worked was the scorer kept picking me up as his leader um, instead of second. So I had to. It just it just didn't work out well. Um, if if it had picked Larry up as a leader, we we had a shot, yeah. but they didn't. So that meant Larry was always, you know, a lap ahead of me, whatever, instead of us being together. So, so the last half of the race, were you thinking you were first, or were you thinking you were second? Evidently, you were no, thinking you were first. Exactly. Okay. Uh, right. Or I would have called it. Um, okay. Yeah. But yeah. when they yeah. picked us up as a leader, um, I, I don't know. I'm I don't know how that worked out. Okay. <clears throat> but they picked us up as a leader, and that really cost us because we we had a pretty good car yeah um so anyway you two were pretty tight oh yeah but what did that do for your friendship nothing really not to mine Um, okay all right um it wasn't larry's fault okay so they um morris metcalf i think was the score at that time and he just he just he just made a mistake he picked up the wrong car as a leader yeah um it was I mean, and you, you didn't find out that the win had been taken away until the next day? Or so. Or, or, okay. I don't know how long it was before he called me and said, uh, you know, we're, we're apologizing. We made a mistake. And so anyway, I, I didn't really know it, but um, I still have the trophies, by the way. That was my next question. I didn't give them up. <laughs> but uh, Larry so you, have, you, you still have the trophy? Yes, sir. That is awesome. <laughs> if Larry came to you and asked for the trophy. No, sir. <laughs> We've talked about that, but it, it was it's kinda of comical now, but I mean I you know, I won't say I was devastated, but it, it for sure did not hurt our relationship whatsoever. Okay. So. Yeah. When I was finishing up the interview with Larry at his shop, just to create a little ruckus. <laughs> I got Mike on the phone and here's all that I'd better share of that conversation. I'll call him right now. <laughs> Do it. Are you? Where are you going? Key West? Yeah. I go to Marathon. That's where I fish out of. Hey, Rick. Good morning or good afternoon. Hey, Mike. How are you? I'm doing well. Just having my father-in-law right now, but we're doing well. Thank you. Well, you know, I'm sitting here with Larry Pearson. And I showed him the picture of your trophy. My trophy. His trophy. No, no, no. He needs to send me the check. I ain't sending him crap. The bottom line for me in all of this is that it's something for a couple of friends to laugh about. Yes, Mike has the trophy. And no, Larry isn't about to send Mike the money difference between first and second place (laughs) in that race. Mike said that if Larry would send him the money differential from second place to first place, which would be about $4,000, he would send Larry the trophy back. Now that's called extortion. (laughs) He's holding it for ransom. You know, Steve, that's an idea. Maybe we could start a GoFundMe. $4,000 is our goal for Larry Pearson to get his trophy back from Mike Alexander. I don't think that would attract a whole lot of attention, Rick. <laughs> I'm a peacemaker. Okay. I wanted to bring the two of them together so they could quit buzzing about this after all these years. 
So I offered to let them display that trophy in our studio at the NASCAR Technical Institute. I thought that that would be a perfect compromise. Yeah, notice it's not there, Rick. <laughs> no, it's not there. <laughs> and from the way that Mike talks about it, I don't they, believe it's going to no. be. <laughs> no. Now, we are going to talk about Larry's 1995 Bush Series win at Darlington in our second segment. But one thing that really stood out to me about that day was the fact that David didn't go to victory lane afterward. And I was there that day. Now, I wasn't covering the Bush Series for scene just yet. I was just there as a staff writer. But it struck me that David was not there to talk about Larry's win and to talk about his history at Darlington. But from what Larry was told, David watched Larry go by on the last lap in his car at the tunnel there underneath what was then turn three. And then he left and left all the post-race stuff to Larry and his team. Rick, I'm real sure there is a very good reason why David wasn't in victory lane, but I can tell you one thing. Any driver in a race who does not win, one of the things he wants to do is get out of there as fast as possible. <laughs> I can't tell you how many interviews I've had with drivers who are jogging their way to get to their cars and get out. From my viewpoint, that was just David Pearson. In his world, he didn't want to take any attention away from Larry, so he let Larry have the spotlight that day. Now, Larry did say that he would have liked for David to be there, and you can imagine what it would have meant to Larry to have some victory lane photos with him holding the trophy right at Darlington with his dad by his side. So, but that was David Pearson sure. and you weren't about to change David Pearson's outlook on something like that or anything he did. Here is a surprise that I got out of this entire interview with Larry. He had a school and I knew that he had the school where he taught teenagers how to drive in order for them to get their licenses. This was the shocking part to me. He said that that was the most relaxing, most fun he had ever had on the job since his days in the Bush series with his family owned team. Really? I would have thought teaching teenagers to drive would be a nerve wracking experience. Was <laughs> <laughs> for me. All I know is that when Adam and Jesse were learning how to drive, any time that I went out with either of them early on in some of their earliest lessons, I saw Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you did. Standing out on the road with his arms folded, <laughs> just kind of shaking his head. <laughs> Jesse's deal, Steve, Jesse's deal was that he was too cautious and he would go too slow I told him one time, Jess, you're going to have to speed up a little bit. There's a dog peeing on your back tire. <laughs> I never had to tell that to my kids. <laughs> the kids who had never driven before. Now, this is a visual for you. Larry Pearson took them to a graveyard <laughs> where they could drive very slowly and make their turns and use their turn signals. His theory was that the kids weren't going to hurt anybody at the cemetery. So why not go there? Why not indeed? I tell you what, the visual impact of seeing headstones all around you might just make them be very cautious. A good friend of mine in Yakinville, 
owns our local funeral home. And when I'll call and ask him if he wants to go to lunch or something like that, he's like, well, I can't, I'm busy or whatever. To which I always respond. It's not like your customers are going anywhere. Come on, man. (laughs) (laughs) You sure said I'm dying to have lunch with you, man. (laughs) Larry said when he got finished with a student, not only could they drive, but they could also do donuts in the parking lot and drive 95 miles an hour on the interstate. <laughs> Larry Pearson teaching kids to drive. Why am I not surprised they can do donuts and run 95 miles an hour on the interstate? Finally, Larry talked about how he would still like to race today. And we have heard other interview guests say basically the same thing. But what makes Larry a little bit different is the 2010 Legends race at Bristol. He wants to drive even today, despite what happened in that accident. Charlie Glotzbach T-boned Larry just about as squarely in the driver's side door as it's possible to get, and Larry was hurt. Which is a real shame, Rick, no doubt about it, but really. Why are they having that kind of a race at Bristol? I mean, come on. That was the last of the Legends Old Timers races at Bristol. When I think of old timer races being good races, I'm thinking about something that happened in Martinsville years ago. They brought out lawnmower tractors and let the old time drivers race those. Now that was cool. Junior Johnson was one of those drivers and he figured it out. I'd bypass the governor on the thing. <laughs> and he reached down and flipped his switch and he was off to the races, man. I mean, he was so far ahead of the others. It was a funny thing to see. But I tell you what, that's the old time races I like. You mean to tell me that Junior Johnson figured out a yeah. way to bend the rules a little bit, even in an old timer's lawnmower race? Hey, when it's in your blood, you can't help yourself. That's <laughs> what it was for Junior. <laughs> Well, in all honesty, you mentioned the lawnmower races at Martinsville. What I would like to see would be something like what Charlotte had back in 1991 on the quarter mile track there. That would be pretty awesome to see. But at Bristol, Uh I, I think we're done with Bristol old timers races. This segment is brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing show place. March 30th, 1995, issue of Winston Cup scene. Sterling Marlin caught up to Dale Earnhardt and passed him for the lead with 12 laps to go at Darlington to post the third victory of his Winston Cup career and his first in an event that was not the Daytona 500. (laughs) Sterling said after the race, I think Dale's car was loose. I noticed he was loose in turns two and four. And I got him looser when I got under him. I really thought it was going to be tougher to get by him, but I guess he figured second place was better than getting caught up in a wreck and finishing 20th or something like that. To which Dell responded, we tore up this car down here testing the week before the race. So it's pretty neat to come back with the same car and finish second. I wish we could have won the race, but second ain't bad. We just didn't have the race car we needed today. It was real loose. We fought it all day long. The guys worked hard all day long, and you've got to be happy with second coming from 23rd on the starting grid. All in all, considering the condition of the car and where he started, Dale had a pretty darn good day finishing second. 
I liked it when Sterling said that he thought it was going to be harder to pass Dell Earnhardt. Well, of course he thought it was going to be harder to <laughs> uh, yeah. pass Dell Earnhardt. <laughs> I, that shows you the car wasn't just right for Dale. Now for Dale to finish second, rather than taking a chance on wrecking, honestly, that wouldn't seem to be the intimidator style that we all knew and that some loved and some loathed. But on this day in particular, discretion really was the better part of valor. There were 15 cautions involving no less than 30 different drivers. <laughs> Another good reason why Dale was happy to finish second. <laughs> and since I make so very few mistakes here on the show, it should be easy for our listeners to remember the fact that a few weeks ago, I incorrectly said that Bobby Labonte broke his shoulder blade at Darlington in the fall of 1999, when in fact he had broken it in the spring event that same season. One of your very few errors, Rick. <laughs> yeah, buddy. <laughs> How about this? Bobby also broke the tip of his right scapula, his shoulder blade, in this race when he was T-boned in the driver's side door by Dick Trickle during a multi-car crash on lap 217. Then Jeff Burton was caught up in two accidents in this event. Jeff said, normally you come here and everybody respects the racetrack. It's like nobody respected it today. Two wide, three wide. There's no margin for error. If you got out of the groove, you got out of control. I know you've got to race hard. You've got to run hard and everything but we just need to respect each other. Three wide at Darlington, Rick. That's just not going to get it. Morgan Shepard had the line of the day. It wasn't one groove. We could work under a guy. It's just some people driving over their heads and getting into other cars. It's kind of like baseball. There's not that many players, and I don't think there's that many race car drivers out here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Morgan. <laughs> oh, pretty much says it all, is not Rick? Jeff Gordon started from the pole, but was involved in a wreck that day. And he was credited with a 32nd place finish. Ray Evernham, Jeff's crew chief had this to say that weekend about the team's championship hopes. That would be like putting a good young fighter in the ring against the champion. We're not ready to get in the ring with Dell Earnhardt yet. At least I'm not. Now this is 1995. Jeff and Ray got ready to contend for the championship that season. They went to the top of the Winston Cup standings halfway through the year, and they stayed there. I don't care what Ray says. Looks like they were ready to get in the ring with Dale Earnhardt and win. I love myself a good underdog slash comeback story. Greatest sports story of all time, 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team. No argument here. The movies, Rocky 1, 2, 3, and 4. I refuse to admit that Rocky 5 exists. Again, no argument here. <laughs> the rookie about Jim Morris, the high school baseball coach who tried out for the Marlins and made it and got called up to the major leagues. Yes, I'm not ashamed to admit it. I've cried every time I've ever seen it or listened to the audio book. I don't think I would admit that. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, the movie Rudy. I wondered when you were going to get around to that. For me, that's kind of how I would describe Larry's win in this weekend's Bush Series race. He had been on top of his little corner of the world with two straight Bush Series championships in 1986 and 87. But then when things didn't work out for him at the Winston Cup level, 
he kind of fell on some hard times in his racing career. He struggled to get his footing back and then landed a pretty decent Bush series ride with team owner, Mac Martin. And for Larry Pearson to win a race was one thing, but Darlington, you better believe that that was special to him. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. He had a rough go of it there for a couple of years. And as a matter of fact, we hardly saw him to be honest with you. But he did come back and did win a big race, and that's got to be a tremendously good feeling for him. I had myself an honest-to-goodness scoop in this issue. I reported that James Hilton was retiring as a driver due to a bleeding ulcer. In my epic story, James said, I guess you can chalk it up. My whole career, I've never said that I've retired from racing, which I never did. But I guess this is the time. In my weakened condition, the year would be out before I could get enough strength to actually try to win a race. Being the age I am, I'm just going to concentrate on being team manager now and finding me a young driver. When we go racing again, it'll be a whole new deal. Uh, now, this was in late March. Less than two months later, James was right back at the racetrack <laughs> attempting to qualify for the Winston Open at Sharp. <laughs> I remember that, Rick. Old James wasn't going anywhere. Gene Granger had this to say about my big scoop. I talked to him on the phone one day, and he said, don't worry about it, kid. I wrote my first James Hilton retirement story 20 years ago. Hey, I'm Bobby Hamilton Jr., and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Hi, I'm Jeff Green. You're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Hello, Scene Vault fans. This is Brian from Speedway Screens. And if you're enough of a NASCAR historian to be listening to this podcast, there's a good chance a piece of the past you've been on the hunt for is in my shop. I'm constantly on the hunt for apparel and collectibles from all genres and eras of motorsports. So whether it be cup cars, dirt modifieds, dragsters, or monster trucks, I've probably got something for you. Check out my inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com and be sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens for the newest items as soon as they drop and for a peek at what I keep for my own collection. As a special thank you to listeners of this show, just enter scene at checkout for 10% off. Speedwaytsj.etsy.com. That's speedwaytsj.etsy.com. This podcast has been brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing showplace. Our question this week comes from superfan Fred Petke. You have shared several times about your career path to scene. My question is what inspired each of you to get into journalism in the first place? What did inspire you to get into journalism? What kept you in journalism? All this well, time? I was never inspired to get into journalism. But once I did get into it, I found it to be something I really enjoyed. I mean, it wasn't a job. It was an experience. I mean, you hear this repeatedly, but you had the opportunity to go places and meet people and talk with them and find out things about them and present that to the public. Man, I thought that was cool. And I was pretty darn good at it. 
So I just decided not long after I got to working for newspapers, this is where I was going to stay. When it comes to my journey in this business, I was on the newspaper staff in school from the eighth grade on. I knew that I loved to write. In my senior year in high school, the paper I worked on was ranked one of the best five high school newspapers in the state of Tennessee. I should have majored in journalism, but beginning in my sophomore year, I felt like I was being led into the ministry. So I majored in religion at what is now Belmont University in Nashville. I was going to be the next Billy Graham, Steve, but it didn't take me long to figure out that I was way more comfortable writing than I was as a public speaker. I can understand that, Rick. I can't imagine you as a public speaker either, but. <laughs> well, thanks being the host of a podcast. I appreciate that there, Hoss. <laughs> Boy, you're not in public when we do this. <laughs> Kick up man while he's down. Why don't you? <laughs> I can tell you the moment that I decided that I was never going to be a full-time preacher. Being a religion major there at Belmont College, which was at the time a Southern Baptist school, churches in the Middle Tennessee area would get the religion majors to come speak if they needed a speaker, a fill-in speaker. So I was at this little bitty country church. And I mean, it was tiny. And I was speaking and I was doing okay. I was trying, I was getting my point across, but at the end of the sermon, I leaned over on the pulpit and got all serious. And I said, ladies and gentlemen, I cannot wait until the day that God sends me to hell. <laughs> you said, what? <laughs> <laughs> That's the exact reaction that everybody who was there had. <laughs> and I guess I should take it as somewhat of a compliment because everybody there made some kind of reaction. Yeah. They were telling each other, this boy ain't going to make it. <laughs> <laughs> I can confirm to you that there is no place to hide in a pulpit. The flop sweat immediately broke out. The pastor of the church was sitting there on the front row and he was just shaking his head. <laughs> and shortly thereafter, I decided that I was going to go into journalism where I had a delete key and I did take journalism 101 in college. And after high school, that was the extent of my formal education as a journalist. But you turned out to be a pretty darn good one, Rick, after all. I think you're much better at this than you are preaching. Obviously, hindsight is twenty twenty, but I really wish I would have majored in journalism. I think that that degree would have made my journey a little bit easier. But by the same token, who knows what might have happened, and I might not be sitting here talking to you today. Well, Rick, again, I say you're a pretty darn good journalist. And Rick, think about how much your readers and your listeners would have lost if you had not a journalist listeners send your questions for me and steve to rick at the or tweet us using the hashtag hashtag ask scene vault pause where's my ipad i gotta get ready i don't have much to say do what? I don't have much to say except the son of a gun took my trophy. We'll, we'll get to that. We're, we're, we're good. <laughs> he stole my trophy. All right. All right.